And so far we have discussed three hindrances and three factors of the meditation that are antidotes. Two of those factors of meditation arise in any meditation. The third one is the entry into the absorptions and becomes the first meditative absorption when that delight remains for some time and one can use it as a meditation subject. There is another factor of meditation which applies to all meditations and that's one-pointedness. Now obviously one has more or less of that and the more one has the more of a purification factor it becomes. But in order to meditate one has to have some of it. So this was again one of the immediate benefits of any meditation practice even when it isn't concentrated. So we have three factors which give immediate benefits even though one doesn't notice anything. It isn't uh, apparent yet it's happening. One-pointedness means that the mind actually stays on the one point of the meditation subject for whatever length of time one is able to do that. There are three kinds of concentration of which only two are mentioned by the Buddha. The third one is commentarial and one doesn't know of course exactly where it comes from. It's called momentary, Kanika Samadhi. And it doesn't do a lot for one because it means just a second just being there for a moment. And yet some traditions seem to use it as an important aspect of meditation. Um, this momentary, in Pali, Kanika Samadhi, um, is something that we do in daily lives. We cannot dial a telephone number correctly or punch it these days without having at least Kanika Samadhi, momentary concentration. It's just not possible. We couldn't even drive a car without momentary concentration. It's just not possible. So it isn't a great meditative factor. I'm mentioning that because there are many viewpoints being bandied about, about what meditation is, and some of them, of course, personally and uh, made up and not quite correct. The word momentary concentration does, has never been said by the Buddha. Neighborhood concentration, which has been mentioned but also not in the connection of samadhi or samatha, is that kind of concentration where there seem to be seems to be a concentration on the meditation subject, but the meditator is actually removed from the meditation subject, sort of stands apart from it. And because of that, there is an opening for thoughts. And these thoughts uh, float by like clouds. I talked about it last night in answer to some questions. The opening which is left for that to happen 
is the distance of the observer to the observed. There is an, an, a distance and anything can get in. So the nearer the observer is to the observed, the less possibility there is of having anything come in. Which means that eventually the observed is the only thing of any interest. The mind has no connection anymore to the observer. And these are subtle states and one has to be able to recognize somehow or other what's going on. As long as there is someone, and we are aware of that someone, that's doing all that, there's a big space where anything can creep in. And that's when concentration does not become what is called apana, which just means full concentration. And these terms are commentarial terms, um, not the apana, the full concentration, that's mentioned by the Buddha. And the other two are mentioned in the commentaries because, of course, they are very often experienced. Momentary concentration is experienced, neighborhood concentration is experienced, and full concentration is that what we're aiming for. Now, the one-pointedness can, of course, happen momentary. It can happen even in the neighborhood concentration momentarily and then it happens really in the full concentration. When it happens in the full concentration then it is a great purifying factor and it is the antidote for our um, desire for sensual gratification. Now the desire for sensual gratification, I've already talked about aspects of that and several of them, one could actually say is the worst of the five hindrances. It's worse in a way than ill will because ill will is so much easier to notice and it's so much more unpleasant for oneself that one would like to get rid of it. Whereas the desire for sensual gratification is approved by society. In fact, it's approved by everyone who wants to make money and who doesn't, very few people. So it is all over the ambience of this realm. And this realm is called in Pali the Kama Loka, not Karma, but Kama, K-A-M-A. Now Loka is the root word for location, the realm. And karma is desire. This is a realm of desire. So our desire for sensual gratification is hard to notice because it's everywhere. It's constant. It's imbued. It's ingrained. It's approved. It's um, even praised. Very few poems are lacking in that one a difficult one to notice and yet it's the one craving together with the craving to be which keeps us away from the total joy and happiness which we really want. You see the desire for sensual gratification has the reaching out 
in it, it has the anxiety whether one is going to get it, and then the anxiety whether one's going to keep it. And having not kept it, the gratification, which is obvious, we can't keep it, then to have to go out again and do it all over again. The antidote to that in daily life is not, and that's very often misunderstood, to try and throw away or remove everything one has and uh, to try and um, be an ascetic in some manner or form. It doesn't work because it's a superimposed um, practice or discipline on top of all the sensual desire and the sensual desire is much stronger. It will burst through burst through that superimposed practice or veneer which was never the one's real being. One has to work with that what one has and is. And again, I'll mention the road map that the Buddha has given us, an exact description of how to get from here to there with signposts at every corner. But if we don't know what corner we are at, the best signposts won't help us. So we have to use what we've got in order to see whether it is something that we really need and which what really makes us happy. So sensual desire has not been um, explained by the Buddha to be suppressed. In fact, he never used the word suppression. It's... Um, it's a misunderstanding and a misconception. What he has explained to do in one's daily life is to analyze. To analyze that what one would desire. And to take it into its parts. And when we see the parts, it's highly unlikely that we will want with the same passion the whole. Now, one of the things which I recommend for that particular practice in order to see things a little more clearly is an inside meditation method. Now, the methodology is essential. Without it, it's all remaining sort of um, no man's land without any real description. The methodology puts the exactness of the description into it. Meditation is science of mind. All sciences have methodology. And only when the science has become so imbued with one's inner being that one doesn't need the method anymore, then one can discard it. Now, a method for this. And it is a meditation practice which I highly recommend to do once a day to get a little better handle on who one really is. Imagine that you have a zipper in front at your, in the front of the trunk and you open the zipper and then you gently and uh, 
deliberately take out all the bits and pieces that you can find inside. Now everybody knows approximately what we consist of. And you become aware of the spot where you're taking it from and also what it feels like if you have sufficient imagination. The heart and the lungs and the gallbladder and the kidneys and the intestines and the uh, blood and the pus and all the things you can think of. And then pile them nicely and neatly in front of you. And then take the bones. And then pile those nicely and neatly in front of you. And also become aware of each of them. And if you don't like doing it, you can be sure it's very important that you do it. Because that means far too much attachment and identification with the body. And intellectually, everybody agrees, oh, I'm not the body. And yet, people do have resistance to doing that. So, why? So having then taken out the bones, the skin collapses. Naturally, nothing's to holding it up. So then looking at all these bones and looking at all these bits and pieces, whatever many you've got there, then you can have a look and say, well, where am I in this? The obvious answer is, of course, nowhere. Nobody's going to say, well, I'm the gallbladder and the intestines and the uh, uh, remnants of the food to be found there. I mean, I'm not, none of that, okay? So then you take the bones and put them nicely back in if you can find the right spots for them, that's good. If you can't, it doesn't matter. And then you take all the nice bits and pieces that you've got lying out there, the uh, gallbladder, kidneys, intestines, whatever it is, and stick it all back in. And then zip it all closed again. And then heave a sigh of relief and say, well, here I am again. And where were you meanwhile? Are we the body? The answer in the head is no. And what's in the feeling? Find out for yourself. The Buddha compared this body of ours, which we call me, with a cart. Now, in the days of the Buddha, there were only ox carts and uh, mule carts available. Nowadays, we have automobiles. And he said, we call this thing a cart. But now, first of all, we have four wheels. Then we have a floor. Then we have a brake. And then we have the sides of the cart. And when we have all these bits and pieces, it's not a cart. It's wheels and floor and brake and uh, it's uh, the sides of it and maybe a seat. But then we stick it all together and all of a sudden we've got a cart. The same with the human being. Stick it all together and all of a sudden you've got a human being. And not only have you got a human being, you've got me, I, the center of the universe, who wants and dislikes and judges and knows and has viewpoints. All of a sudden it's there. Try it with the zipper. It's an excellent practice. Traditionally it's called the 32 parts of the body. Usually we chant only 31 parts. It's still called 32 parts of the body. 
And you don't have to make sure whether you find all 32 of them. It doesn't really matter. Find as many as you can. You can <clears throat> use the eyes and the nose and everything you like. And you will find out what you think about yourself. Not what you think, I should say. What you feel about yourself. And the more you dislike this thing, doing that, the more attached you are to the body, the more important it is. And the more sensual desire will come up. Because that is part of the biggest part of sensual desire, that we want things for the body. That's where it all comes from. We want all these comforts and we want all these nice things because they are connected to body. So this kind of practice will help us to analyze what, it, what this all is all about. The sensual desire that we want to gratify will not just go away because we have agreed to it that it's not a good thing to have or it's something that we get anyway, the gratification, we don't have to look for it. It won't go away from that at all. On the contrary, it probably gets stronger. What we suppress really balloons out. Just imagine you've got a balloon filled with air and you press in. Well, it starts getting all sorts of shapes, pushing out this way and pushing out that way until it bursts. That's a totally wrong way of practicing to suppress. The, the way to see it is to analyze. Now, if the sensual desire is for another person, please don't take the other person apart. Always take yourself apart. It always starts with oneself. Obviously, we can deduce from our own bits and pieces inside that everybody's got them. And that does remove some of this desire. Because when we know what we're desiring, we also know that it's not fulfilling once we get it. So it is an analytical approach to our desires, which does not always work. Sometimes the mind will say, oh, well, that's all right, but I want it anyway. That's the way it is. This is the aspect of the, in the life situation, using the antidote. The Buddha compared sensual desire to being in debt. If we owe money to the bank, we have to go every month and pay off with interest. If we owe gratification to our senses, we have to go constantly and pay off with interest. Now, this is an important point because that too, that interest bit, because that too is constantly misunderstood. Not everybody has contact with that, but some people contact spiritual teachings which advocate gratifying all sensual desires to the point where one has over-gratified them so that one no longer has them. It doesn't work. It's not the way the human being is made up. We pay with interest. And the more we borrow, the higher the interest. In other words, 
the more we gratify, the more we need, or think we need. So that aspect is also not working. There are two ways that don't work. Both are extremes. One is gratifying to the utmost or to whatever we want, whatever happens that we want it, and we get it. And the other side is the suppression. Both are extremes and they don't work. Analysis is what the Buddha recommended. It's quite obvious that that is a middle path. One wonders why so many people don't see that. It's so obvious and so simple. Now obviously also the analysis won't always work because our mind will give up and say, uh, it's all right, but everybody else is doing it. Maybe at that time we can remember the story of the golden bowl. That means the golden thread of our spiritual practice, which has to swim upstream against the current. The more one knows about the teaching, really knows, the easier it is to practice. Because one remembers those things at the time that they need to be remembered. But our mind is also very tricky. It can remember for quite a while. And then all of a sudden it says, eh, I don't like this anymore. And we forget it. We just forget the whole thing. It's all possible. We are the only guardians of our own mind that exists. If we don't guard it, nobody else will. It's a very fragile and very wonderful tool. But being so fragile, it falls to bits so often, as everybody knows. And then, being a magician, it can do anything from the darkest to the lightest. So we have to watch it, and we have to be careful with it. Nobody in their right mind voluntarily scratches their body or breaks their bones or um, falls down on their face. They watch what, where they're going, especially in a place like this. One is careful where one steps so that one doesn't have a physical uh, disability, that one doesn't have something happen to the body, bleeding or something like that. We have to be much more careful with the mind. Watch where we step. And as we watch it, we will know the areas to step into those that keep the mind intact. Guardians of the mind, it's a very important thing to remember. So the, in the daily life, the um, antidote is the analysis. We don't have to just do that with people, we can do that with things. We can do it with food. What, does, what happens to the food after we put it into our mouth? Just, you know, everybody knows what happens to it. And then it comes out again. And it's certainly not called food anymore. And yet when we want to put it in, we are very uh, keen on it and want it to be uh, the kind we like. When it comes out, it's all one and the same. Nobody likes it anymore. So that too can help one if one has some great affection for food. It's a, a necessary, as we say every day, it's necessary to keep one alive. 
And if, it's, if it keeps one alive, it's just as well that it tastes good. But that's all. It, it's not recommended by the Buddha that it should taste bad. Not at all. It should taste good and it should be healthy. In fact, he mentions that. But the affection that we have for it, that is not necessary. We should see it for what it really is. Now, not everybody is beset by that particular problem, but some people are. And uh, we can look at other things that we really have attachment to and analyze them. That's the antidote, the an analysis. The Buddha's teaching is sometimes called a teaching of analysis. Totally objective, totally scientific. Not just taking for granted what the eye sees and the ear hears, but taking it into, part, into its parts, seeing it for what it really is. Now, the one-pointedness of the meditation counteracts that automatically, the sensual desire, because at the time of that one-pointedness, obviously, one is secluded from one's senses. And at that time, there is no sense desire. However, we need a residual effect because nobody sits all day meditating just in order to get out of sensual desires. It can't do that. It's not logical. It's not uh, practical. So we need that residual effect. And that residual effect comes with the meditative absorptions because the other factor, the one which I haven't mentioned yet, that arises automatically together with the delightful sensation is happiness or joy. We call it happiness because that is its correct translation. In Pali, it's sukha, the opposite of dukkha. The same spelling, just an S in front instead of a D. So the sukha that arises automatically is together with the delightful sensation. And having experienced that, just that, which is only the first meditative absorption, the mind now knows without a shadow of a doubt that it has far more gratification, far more fulfillment in meditation than it can ever get through the senses, no matter what it does to get. No matter how hard we try to get the nicest things, whatever they may be, it just isn't. What we get in the meditative, so even the first one, Meditative absorption is no comparison in its quantity and quality and primarily it's independent. We don't have to go anywhere where there are beautiful things to be seen or to be heard or to be touched or to be smelled or eaten. We don't have to think up beautiful stories, nothing of the sort. It's right there because we have learned to concentrate. Now, this is the automatic antidote, but also it is the residual effect. The residual effect in everyday life that we know we can get back to that when we want to, when we have become skilled in meditation, and believe me, it isn't that difficult. Sometimes the mind makes up unnecessary difficulties. 
because it's something new, it's something different, or one has heard from some people that it's something that is only done when one has sat in the forest for 20 years. I have heard that story. Or one can only do it if one is totally pure in one's uh, moral virtues. Um, one has heard all sorts of stories, maybe, and then the mind says, oh, too difficult for me. It isn't. It is the natural pathway that the mind wishes to go. It has a natural wish for that. And it has a natural inclination. And when one inclines somewhere, one inclines in a certain direction. The mind has that inclination. One just has to allow it and not obstruct it. Obstruct it with thinking, viewpoints, ideas, and all sorts of other things that come into the mind. One has to let um, the obstructions go, that's all. So it isn't that difficult. Having the residual effect of the happiness which arises with the, uh, together with the delightful sensation which gives a feeling of fulfillment within, helps us to not search for sensual gratification. And when we give up the search, we release a lot of time and energy for spiritual practice, for introspection, for clearing out a lot of the obstructions. The time and energy that humanity spends on trying to find sensual gratification can be full time. And then anything less than what one has already understood. So the more we release our own time and energy, the more we can, of course, use it for the transcendental pathway. Also, the enjoyment of the sensual contacts, which I have already mentioned when we talked about the worldly um, depend arising, the enjoyment will be pure because it is not anymore or purer in the end it will be pure let's say it will be purer because it's no longer imbued with the desire to keep more with the desire to get it again it just is and therefore it is almost childlike there's a, a typical Zen story about that a great Zen master was dying and the disciples were all hovering around the deathbed waiting for his last words, the last instructions, the last wisdom. But he wasn't saying anything. But finally his lips started moving and so they got real near so that they could hear because it wasn't very loud anymore. And he said, I want a piece of cream cake. <laughs> so they rushed out and got not one but ten pieces of cream cake and then fed him with the spoon a little bit of the cream cake and again they could see that he was going to say something and again they all hovered around him and, said, and listened carefully and he said delicious and then he died <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
Well, it, it fits with what I'm trying to tell you. <laughs> One thing about the Zen practice, they've got the best stories. <laughs> when we try to tell stories, we usually uh, try to get them from them. So, the um, meditative antidote of the one-pointedness against the uh, sensual desire or the desire for sensual gratification then has as its um, helper, support system, the happiness. And the happiness is considered to be the antidote against restlessness and worry. Now that is our, uh, the last of the hindrances. I haven't taken them in, a, in their exact order. And I haven't taken the factors in their exact order either. Um, restlessness and worry is compared by the Buddha to being a slave. One is being pushed around by it. One is being pushed around by worry and uh, can't come to a real peaceful feeling. And one is certainly pushed around by restlessness going from here to there. Now one doesn't only experience restlessness in the body, one experiences it in the mind. When one tries to meditate, the mind goes from here to there. Restlessness. Why is this restlessness? Because one hasn't found what one wants. One hasn't found the total fulfillment within. So the mind doubts from one thing to the next and in the hope that it will find something, something that it will, that it will be satisfied with. But on the worldly level, there is nothing that will satisfy the mind for any length of time. It will satisfy for a moment. And as we do that in meditation, the mind goes to thinking, it's for a moment interested, and then it thinks of something else again. So it doubts around. Now obviously that is translated into our physical actions. We go from one place to the next, we move from the city to the country, and back from the country to the city, we move from one country to another country, we uh, visit friends, we uh, get on the telephone, we watch the television, uh, constant some movement. We're not really in that peaceful state that we would like to be in and are trying to cover it over with the movements which are physical or mental. This happiness that we experience even just in that very first jhana, first meditative absorption, I'm going to call it jhana, it's sort of two syllables and compared to I don't know how many meditative absorptions. So the um, happiness which is experienced in the very first jhana, of course, eliminates restlessness and worry for the time of the meditation, that's quite obvious. But again it has a residual effect because we know we have something that will satisfy. All we have to do is sit down and get concentrated. It is dependent upon concentration, but it is independent of the world. Now, that alone, that statement, for those of you who have heard Buddhist teaching before, it's not unconditioned. It has the condition of concentration. It has the condition of mind and body. But it is 
Therefore, because it is independent, it does not depend on the worldly matters and worldly level. So it is not anything to do with Nibbana, but it certainly gives one the pathway. The pathway which then results in a lessening of our desire to get something because we know we can get it and we know where it is. It's within us and we know how to get it. We have to concentrate. And since we have already learned to concentrate, otherwise we wouldn't know it's there, we can do it. And not having to search here and there and not having to um, worry about the future, the mind becomes more and more peaceful in daily living. Again, for the uh, antidotes in daily life, noble friends and noble conversation, knowing more about the Dhamma. There are several antidotes which are identical for different hindrances. The um, happiness that arises in that uh, first jhana as a companion to the delightful sensation is an obvious factor. If one has the delightful sensation, it's impossible not to be happy about it. It's also impossible not to recognize that this is much more rewarding than what the world has to offer. So, on the other hand, it's not possible to sit down and say, all right, it's much more rewarding than what the world has to offer. It's very nice, it's wonderful, so I'm going to get it. It doesn't work. One's got to remove the obstructions. And the obstructions are that what we carry around in the mind. And when we remove those things that we carry around in the mind and let ourselves fall into the concentration, fall into the meditation subject, we no longer stand apart from it. Now, one of the things which can also help, and I try to give you as many possibilities to help yourself with the concentration if it hasn't happened yet, one of the things which can also help is your practice of the four elements in the way I have described it. Now, there are different ways of practicing the four elements. But I have described the, the practice also as a support system for the concentration. And I'll explain that to you right now. If you're standing outside on the, on the ground, and it's particularly good if you were standing barefoot, but it's just as well because the ground is a bit uh, wet to stand with your shoes on. But barefoot is even better. You stand on the ground, obviously you can feel the earth element. There's no doubt about it. You can feel the earth element in the sole of your foot, right? And you can feel the earth element earth. Now obviously there's more earth than just that little piece that you're touching with your foot. In fact, this whole planet's covered by Earth. And all around you is Earth. You can even see it optically. So, from that feeling of touching Earth with Earth, Earth element with Earth element, let yourself flow 
that feeling of flowing into the earth around you and let it go further and further into the trees, they're also solid, earth element, into those um, very enormously big trunks of trees and very high and very solid. And then, having flown with the earth, then you can think how far the earth goes, how you belong to that, how you can't be alive without it. And then do the same with your breath. You feel the breath for a moment and let it flow into the air around you. It's the same thing. That's what you get in that breath, that air around you. Let the breath flow into the air around you and then flow into it. Breath is life. The air around you is your life. Without it, you can't live. Flow with it. See how this air is everywhere, further than the optics can go. It gives a feeling, if you do it with concentration, it gives a feeling of being the same as what is around us and also no separation. It gives a feeling of being part of all that, actually of being all that. And when you sit down in meditation and you're no longer this person that's trying to get concentrated, and you're no longer this person that's having the knee pain. And you're no longer this person that has been trying for so long and still isn't concentrated. Or whatever kind of person you happen to be at that moment. But you're just all these elements. It's so much easier to let go. Obviously it doesn't work for everybody, but try it. It works. It works particularly well if there is a feeling of separateness. This is me. And of course everybody has that, but some people have it stronger. And the stronger one has it, the more apart one is from the meditation subject. Because this is me meditating. As long as it's me meditating, it doesn't work. It's got to be only the meditation subject. And the elements, the experience of the elements helps. There are many things that help, but that is another one that can help. So I will now repeat the five hindrances and the five antidotes. And I repeat them not in their traditional order, as you will find them in books, but I will repeat them how they belong together, which one is the antidote for which, okay? The first one is the initial application to the meditation subject which is the antidote for sloth and torpor. The second one is the sustained application to the meditation subject, which is the antidote for skeptical doubt. The third one is the lightful sensation, PT in Pali. And that's the antidote against ill will, which is quite easy to understand. The next one is happiness which arises as a companion to the delightful sensation. And that is the antidote against restlessness and worry. And the last one is one-pointedness, and that's the antidote against the desire for sensual gratification. Three of those meditation factors are present in all meditations before they become jhanas. 
The last one in all meditation. The first two before they become jhana. Initial application and sustained application. One-pointedness has to remain a factor of meditation as long as we meditate. From beginning, when we don't concentrate to the end until we are fully concentrated. One-pointedness remains. And the other two are factors of first jhana and second jhana. So when the first jhana has been fully experienced and fully means that one can stay on the delightful sensation without having to think about it for 10 to 15 minutes, then it is fully experienced. Then, and this is from a practical standpoint, one lets this delightful sensation go into the background of one's attention and brings the joy which is already present or happiness into the foreground. And that becomes the meditation subject. In other words, we go from the gross to the subtle. As we have sensation, that's our entry point. And it is still a very gross experience. It is much more subtle than trying to remain on the breath growth then the happiness which is an emotion so we can say that the first thing that we experience is more physical whereas the next thing that we experience is more emotional and obviously as we go along this pathway it will become much more subtle until it becomes become experiences that are not um, known to us in the material world. The first four of the jhanas are called the fine material jhanas. They are actually called rupa jhanas. Rupa means body and jhana means meditative absorption. So it means actually literally translated body jhanas. But what it means in its, in its meaning is fine material jhanas. And the reason for that is that we actually have experiences of that sort in the world, in the, on the worldly level, except that they are induced by outside triggers and are qualitatively and quantitatively of no comparison. In the quality they are not as fulfilling and in the quantity they are not lasting. Here, it strictly depends upon our own concentration. So while we do know delightful sensations in the world, they have to have the outside trigger. And they also are only lasting as long as the touch contact remains. If it remains for too long, it becomes unpleasant. Here, it's just concentration. And in those two levels, happiness, we have experienced happiness, everybody has. And we've always assumed that it was due to a certain experience. So we're always looking for the similar experience. But the happiness we get in the world, again due to an outside trigger, is again short-lived as long as the trigger can produce it. So, and it has never had the quality of fulfillment. 
it has always left behind the wish for renewal because it has disappeared and it always left behind a little bit of unsatisfactoriness and sometimes a lot sometimes it leaves behind actually a feeling of depression because again that what one experienced and thought was going to be totally fulfilling didn't um, keep its promise so we can say that our sense contacts are like fool's gold they glitter but they do not have intrinsic value we will have them we are never going to be without them as long as we have the senses and if you remember the story of the Zen master they become utterly pure so here is the second step on this progression we are faced with an inner happiness or an inner joy which arises as an effect from the cause of the delightful sensation each step is the effect of the previous one the previous one was the effect of the concentration here we have the joy as the effect of the delightful sensation the first two factors can now be discarded the initial application and the sustained application should at this time be no longer necessary when one has become adept at it in the beginning one falls off it and has to start again with initial application and sustained application the initial application at that time need not be the key, the method in other words one doesn't have to go back to the breath or to the sleeping one may have to but it's not very often necessary what is necessary is that having fallen off the joy that one just goes back on it because one knows exactly where it's actually within oneself originating now that's not its cause that's just a feeling the cause is the concentration and the delightful sensation but there is a feeling of course connected with it which is to be found within oneself it is not even proper to say it's physical but we only have mind and body so we go to something to a point where we realize that this is where we felt it and usually it's quite easy to get back onto the joy should it not be possible one has to go back to the delightful sensation should that not be possible one has to go back to the concentration on the meditation subject whatever one has to do maybe one has to open one's eyes and start all over again whatever it may be but what one needs to do is to be able to stay with the joy for something like 15 minutes well, without looking on the watch it means a good chunk of time this second factor this second step I should say of the meditative absorption has a very peculiar effect on us it gives a lot of self-confidence in fact it gives the kind of self-confidence that is more or less unshakable because having been able to have this as a 
continual practice, not potluck, not it happens once and then not again, that doesn't do anything. It just uh, arouses craving, I want it again. But as a continual practice, it gives the self-confidence that I myself am responsible for my own happiness and I'm able to have it. That means we are no longer thrown by the winds of the emotions of other people. We are no longer dependent upon somebody's goodwill. It's very nice if we get it, but we're not dependent upon it. We're not dependent upon other people's ego support. We're not dependent upon our own ego support. All we need is to sit down and meditate. And obviously that's what we came here for. The self-confidence which arises is not a superiority feeling. It's also not uh, anything that arises out of uh, the contrariness to an inferiority feeling, nothing like that at all. It's got nothing to do with superiority, which very often arises out of inferiority. Nothing of that nature at all. It just gives the feeling of security that oneself is the, has the ability to look after oneself. With the most important aspect, with the aspect of happiness. And that aspect of happiness, which we have all wanted, and which is the human condition, and we should want it. We should want happiness. If we don't, we're masochistic, which isn't healthy at all. So we should want happiness. And everybody is looking for it. And there we've got it. And having got it, that kind of confidence gives the security feeling of being at ease with oneself and being all right where one is and what one is. Because one doesn't really need so much anymore. It also makes it possible to reduce one's negative reactions to the to a minimum. And when one reduces one's negative reactions to a minimum, and it's not a total elimination yet, that comes much later, but one reduces them to a minimum, then one has an additional feeling of security, an additional feeling of safety, because whatever happens, one knows one's going to react all right. It's not going to throw one into a fit of negativity, anger, worry, dislike, hate, and so on. That feeling of security is such a difference from the ordinary way of living that one really has to bite into the mango in order to know what it tastes like. And it's only the second jhana, and there are eight altogether. And all it needs is to sit there and do it, and not be the one that's doing it, but just do it. Now with that second step, safely under one's belt, one then needs to also always remember that at the end, and this is for a very important reasons, at the end, to realize the impermanence of it. Because if one doesn't, one may get this 
delusion of grandeur. I've made it. I'm really there. Nothing else to be done. Look at me. And then the self-confidence deteriorates in a feeling of superiority. It's highly unlikely. I have never yet seen it happen. In my personal experience of teaching for 18 years now, I've never seen this happen. Probably because I warn against it. I don't know. But what I have seen happen is really good and strong self-confidence. Because it is absolutely essential to see at the end that too is impermanent. And to recognize one's pathway. Because only if one recognizes one's pathway will one gain insight. Now all the things I have told you about those first two steps, their residual effects, that's insight. Each one of those jhanas produces insight. And that's what they're supposed to be doing. The higher jhanas produce even more insight. And that's why they're called vipassana jhanas. They're called insight jhanas. But even the lower ones, and these are the two lowest ones, produce insight. And these are the residual effects I've been talking about. So that's two things. That too is impermanent. How did I get here? What did I do? Every little bit is important that one does. Every thought that one may have had when sitting down is important. It's important to have a recognition of the pathway so that one doesn't sort of traipse around in the dark recesses of one's mind but knows exactly what to do and how to get there so that it's a, a meditative pathway which is always available when one wants it. And then what is the insight I have gained from this? Because only that what have I learned? Only that really brings about that inner shift. That inner shift where we get away from believing that the world has got it for us. That the world is there in order to entertain us. That the world is there to give us something. That the world is there to bring us happiness. That inner shift that comes around only from the inside. So that third step is also very important. I think that should be enough for one morning. If you like to ask some questions, this is the time for it. Um, yeah. Who's first? Yes. If you're in the state and then when you finish, you go back with your memory what it was. It's not a nothingness, it's a very delightful sensation. And as you've been in it and then you stop, then you recapitulate. There's a hollowness, lightness. Now, just a minute. 
That is the lightness, a feeling of the body? That's what you meant to say. That lightness is your meditation subject. You don't have to say anything. Well, if the, <clears throat> that might be so in the beginning, but as you become used to that, you know very well that that's your meditation subject. It's just a feeling. That's all it is. Sensation, I should say. And uh, no need to say anything. If the mind says something, it may fall off that lightness again. But if it's strong enough, it might not. But the thing to do is when the lightness arises, to be it. Hopefully not. Who knows? <laughs> Once the lightness has arisen, that's the meditation subject. And it just be that lightness. Okay? There's a what? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You keep them. <laughs> That's uh, the last two. If you um, um, if a wholesome thought has not yet arisen, make it arise. If a wholesome thought has arisen then um, continue the wholesome thought. Oh, if, uh, how to continue? <laughs> well, I made the recognition no blame change up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the, uh, for, the, for the positive one, the the inner feeling is one of pleasure. Yes. Well, that should be enough to keep it. Yes. That's right. And it's a clinging only if it's a made-up thing, if one has made-up, you know, fantasies. But if it's a thought of lovingness or compassion or helpfulness or gratitude, then that should remain in the mind. The mind's got to have something until one learns to have a mind without thinking, even in daily living. Yes. Of course, one can have mind without thinking, even in daily living. But that is an experience that comes from the meditative part. So in the, in the beginning, it's very important to keep the good thoughts going. Um, well, <laughs> you know, until one is enlightened, there's clinging. So it's much better to cling to the good one than to the bad one. <laughs> no. No. Just recognizing that that is the way to have inner peacefulness and therefore staying with it. 
recognizing the peacefulness that is brought about through the wholesome thinking and then staying with it. Ah, maybe I'll think of some formula. <laughs> yes. I made it out going out through hands and feet, but that's only necessary if the uh, delightful sensation does not come. If it's just, you know, any old sensation, then it's better to go out through the hands and the feet. But if it's a delightful sensation, you don't want to go out, you want to be there. Right? Yes. Well, I doubt very much that you would be able to sit for three weeks in uh, in the jhana. <laughs> um, these first ones. Uh, because we still have uh, people still have difficulties with sitting and so forth if they are established for 15 or 20 minutes each then one can go on to the next one there are some that one can stay in easily for an hour and there's no need to go anywhere but not these first two two No, you can sit if you can sit in the, the for the first one the uh, the time span should not be too long, but the second one you can sit uh, the whole day if you like if you've got nothing else to do. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's right. <laughs> yes, that would be very good. <laughs> that is a that's a very good statement. Only you know people would look at you a bit uh, funnily and say, "What's he talking about?" <laughs> but it's quite correct. You're quite right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Mm-hmm. 
Yes, if you can do that, that's very good. But the, the same thought, of course, no, you can't go over and over and over and over and over. But you can recognize that this is a wholesome thought and can, if you can't just stay with the feeling, um, enlarge upon it. You know, if you're thinking uh, you want to feed the birds because they have no food or something like that, and then you can think that they'll probably be happy about that and that they might be able to feed their little ones and so on. These are on, a, on that level. But if you can stay with the feeling without the thinking, that's much better. But that takes meditative practice. Are you talking about the sensation or the joy? The joy. Um, in the sitting, it can be much, much stronger. Much stronger. It needn't be. If it's mild in the sitting, that's the kind of mild feeling one can have under all circumstances. But it can be very, very strong in the sitting. That you can't sustain walking around. It's not possible. It would be um, physically very uncomfortable. You couldn't, you know, do your things properly. Because you can't keep your mind on this very strong feeling and still be quite uh, nimble. Would it be, um, uh, when you were talking about not being able to get to the I don't know if I can go along with your statement that we all have this wonderful, joyful feeling sometime when we're walking along. I'm not so sure whether that's true. I can remember years ago that I didn't have it. I was walking along and I didn't feel this wonderful happiness inside of me at all. No, not even sometimes. No, I don't know whether that's true. I seem to remember that that is not the case. In fact, that the mind churns, that the mind has all sorts of ideas and does not allow this. The feeling could arise if the mind would stop churning about, but it doesn't. And it also judges, and because it does that all the time, that inner feeling does not arise. But what I hear you say, and, I, and you're quite correct in that, if, let's put it if at the beginning of the sentence, if one knows a very happy feeling within, which can come through any trigger, doesn't matter which one, it can come through a sight or through a sound, through a thought, right? 
if one knows that, to bring that with one into the meditation and try to enlarge upon that. Yes, it's, uh, it's a possibility. And, but there has to be an if at the beginning of the sentence. So if one knows that, it is also another possibility. If there is something specifically, for instance, if in the forest, just as an idea, one sees a tiny little frog, which I did the other day, and I thought, gee, this is really lovely. And he seemed to have a little red head and green body and would look really, really nice. And if that sort of thing would make one happy, one might be able to sustain it long enough to bring it in here. But it's not easy if one doesn't have the meditative support system. Not an easy thing. And of course a frog is a bad example because they're not so plentiful. So it might be better to a leaf with a dewdrop on it or something like that. Yes, Mia. Well, I don't know. Uh, when you sit down in the meditation and you have a happy feeling, that's what you have said, right? Um, I don't know whether it's any different from the meditative feeling. I can't tell. The words are the same. Mm. That comes. Well, the delightful sensation can be one of many, and one of them is lightness, lightness of body, which comes from concentration. The body has a totally different feeling from when it sits here now. It feels like a real, like a lump when it sits here now, I must say. But when you're meditating, it doesn't feel like that. It feels transparent, I mean, when you're concentrated, transparent and light. Now that is one of the many sensations which are possible to use as a meditation subject. It doesn't have to be anything grandiose. It's nothing grandiose. It's just different from what you're experiencing otherwise. Well, then use it. If you have a feeling of lightness and pleasantness in the body, use it as your meditation subject. Get off the breath. Maybe that's what you've been doing all the time without knowing that you should be getting off the breath. It's quite possible. I can't tell. I have no idea. But it's possible. So if you have a feeling of lightness and pleasantness, which is other than what you're having right this moment, use it as your meditation subject. That feeling. Is it other than what you're having at this moment? Okay, then use it as your meditation subject. May have been there all the time, you see. You see the words I mentioned that once before, the words we are able to use are the same that we use for everything else. They just mean something different. So please do that huh, in the next meditation. Yes. No? I thought you had your hand up. No. Yes, 
That misunderstanding also comes about because, as I said, unfortunately the jhanas are not being taught. And one is constantly told, go back to the breath. You know, so, um, I mean, it's been my own personal experience. So, I know that one is being told that. <laughs> so, um, um, yes, it's quite possible, Neil, that you actually have that feeling. So, please use it, huh? And see what happens. Okay. Anything else? Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, it's not the wrong words, it's the wrong attitude. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're tr- striking a chord in people's uh, minds. No, it's a help. The, I, took, I said that already to somebody else. The light is a traffic signal. It says concentration. And um, a torchlight, uh, it can be more than that actually. It can be sunlight. It can be that strong. So if it's strong enough uh, to be very noticeable, as you say, then make it larger and larger until you sit in it. And as you sit in it for a little while, it can be very short actually. It's not a meditation subject as such. It's only a concentration effect. Then, most likely, sensations will arise. The light came after. Yes, and then... Yes, and then this. Yes, right. You're on the way to concentration. This is a it's a traffic signal saying, "All right, concentration." So as you you as you have it, make it bigger, bigger, bigger. Sit in it, stay in it, and as you sit in it, become aware of the sensations. Okay, and don't look for the sensations. Become aware of the sensations. Okay. Anything else? 